Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Walter Parks, thank you for our theme song. If you'd like to know more about Walter's music, WalterParks.com. Davine Dial, thank you for running the radio station, WPVMFM. If you'd like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave spelled N-A-V-E. My website's JamesNave.com as well. So I would love to hear from you. What's your story, wherever you are in the world? And if you'd like to join me any Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon eastern time for the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week it's it's always open to anyone who wants to come and we write for an hour with writers from all over the world we have one who calls in from south africa another fellow calls in from rwanda often we have a couple of brits calling in from around the london area so if you're interested in in that you can go to imaginativestorm.com that's imaginativestorm.com and find out all you need to know about how to connect with us on saturday morning i work with my creative collaborator allegra houston on this project so we would love to see you on that screen if that's something you're moved to do and today i'm having a conversation with a fellow I've known for some time. We've never actually met in person, but we've had many exchanges by way of email, by way of Zoom calls. Also, I've been keeping up with his work as a musician. He's a singer-songwriter. He lives up in Canada, and his name is Jeremiah Hill. And Jeremiah is also a big fan of the artist way. Jeremiah administrates an artist way page. It's not actually a page. It's a group. He makes that distinction that has a 12,000, maybe 13,000 people on it now. So he's quite involved in the world of creativity. So Jeremiah Hill, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thanks for having me, James. So you're in Canada. I'm about an hour north of Toronto. We technically have four seasons, but it's mostly a really hot summer and then it's kind of waning out and then, oh, look, it's fall and bam, it's winter. <laughs> we have fall-ish and we have spring-ish. And it rarely just settles into spring. It's always on any given day, it could be winter or it could suddenly turn into like almost summery. So I'd like to talk a little bit with you about creativity because you have been working in that arena for a long time. And you started this Artist Way group a number of years ago thinking you would like to reach out with other people who are doing creative work. And slowly the group has grown over the years to have, as I said, 12 or 13,000 people on it. And it's growing every day. As an administrator, what has it been like for you to administer this growing page full of creative people? And what are some of the things you've learned as you've moved along in your observations while you've been administrating this page? I think the easiest place to start is how I started the page. So I first did The Artist Way in 2002. And then I did her second book, Walking in This World, in 2005. In 2007, I moved to South Korea for a number of years and also did some traveling. At one point, I was traveling in India, which is one of my favorite places. And this particular trip was exactly sort of the same time when Facebook was becoming popular in about 2007. I don't know what happened exactly, but at one point while I was sitting in this hotel in this little town called Rishikesh in India, I suddenly 
was thinking about the possibilities of Facebook and I was like, Oh, I bet I could meet uh, other artist way uh, types. And I'd done the artist way, you know, up in Canada or in, in different parts of the world, the kind of really in isolation. And I wanted to connect with other people. It was actually quite rare that I met people who'd, who'd done it at that point. And so I went on Facebook looking for some kind of connection, some kind of group, some kind of artist way thing. And there wasn't one. <laughs> so, and I looked for Julia Cameron and at that point she wasn't really on. So I just was like, well, maybe I'll just make a group and bring some people together. And that way I, I did it so that I could meet other artist white people. Just have that community because Julia Cameron talks a lot about finding uh, what she calls like believing mirrors. People who see the potentiality in your unborn creativity and people who are there to sort of root for you and things. And I, I felt like I wanted more of that. How, how can I get that? Well, I can find other people who've done the artist way. And so one morning I woke up and I just suddenly was inspired description of what the group would be. And it kind of came to me almost like a dictation. And I just kind of wrote it down, like, this is what the group's going to be. And I went to the internet cafe and I sat down on this computer. I paid my money per hour, whatever. And I made this Facebook group called the Artist Way Group. Just went from there for several years. There was nobody else. Like there just weren't any other groups. Most people were doing clusters. She has this whole concept of doing a cluster where you do the artist way uh, with a group of people and you get together and you do it kind of collectively. So most of the groups that were on Facebook were people who were doing it as a group together. And I was like, I want to just connect all the people who just generally do the artist way. And I specifically said, this is not a cluster. We're not going to do the artist way together. We're just going to talk about the artist way and meet with other people who do it. And if you want to break off and do it, that's great. So that's basically how it started. What have you learned? I have learned a lot. It's been a crash course in the artist way. It's kind of kept me doing the artist way. I get a lot of the frequently asked questions about the morning pages. People ask questions about artist dates. People ask questions about all, all the tools. And so you just sort of see these things over and over again. It puts the questions in my mind. And then I'm kind of always have my feelers out for different podcasts with Julie Cameron. So I hear these different answers and then other people come in with, with different ideas that they have about doing it. It's very hard to sum up any one particular thing that I've learned. It's just more like a slow burn of questions and answers about it, I think. So for somebody who's been working with this for so long, what would you tell someone who had no idea what the artist way was about? How would you describe it? I would say it is a book and program that you read and do for about 12 weeks with the purpose of unblocking your creativity. And what are some of the tools that you've used that have produced things for you? The two main tools are the artist date and the morning pages. For me, it's the whole program, doing the morning pages every day, trying to do an artist date every week. One of the biggest impacts I had for me was the essays in that original book do a lot of deconstructing of a, a lot of common mythologies about artists and what artists shouldn't do or what it takes to be an artist. Or There's just so many common reasons why not to make art so why you can't be an artist. For me, that part was one of the most impactful I didn't realize how much of that was sort of in the background of my mind that I picked up because the whole reason I was feeling blocked is I went to film school. And while I was there, it just seemed that everything was competitive and projects were always having to get approved. And we got a lot of negative feedback and I had projects that didn't get approved. And I had one project that got approved that I didn't even want to do, <laughs> but I did it. Like I kind of wrote something I thought they would want to, and I actually didn't do it. I just felt blocked. And reading that book, I saw how I got blocked from the different things that they said and how I internalized it. By the end, I found myself having less and less 
to say, fewer and fewer ideas about what I wanted to do. And I'd gone in so enthusiastic and I came out dry. One of my last days at New York University in Toronto, I was walking along this path and I bumped into this girl who had been in an acting class, which was my best, what I thought was my best class of, of the entire four years I was there. And she just suddenly started to talk with the artist way. She's like, oh, you got to read this book. It's so great. It's like, it's awesome. And so I just earmarked that. And it wasn't until a few years later when I saw it in a bookstore and decided to pick it up and, and do it. When you talk about blocks, how do you visualize a block? And the reason I ask is we were, I was having a conversation with some people recently about blocks. Do they it really exist? Are they figments of our imaginations? Do blocks seem large because we're so close to them? And do they grow smaller when you pull back and have a broader worldview? What is your relationship with blocks? When you use that word, what do you mean? For me, there's two types of blocks. And one is the classic blocks that, that people think of. I'm a writer and I have no idea what I'm going to write. One is in film school and they were constantly putting limitations on it. I remember after first year screenwriting class, it was 1990 seven or so. And it was right after Pulp Fiction had come out. And so there's all these like, young 19, 20 year olds who just want to be like the next Quentin Tarantino. And that school was very much not oriented that way. It had a very Eastern European aesthetic. Our screenwriting professor said, no more homicidal violence <laughs> in any of the screenplays. <laughs> and everyone's like, uh, uh, what am I going to do? And then he said, no clocks. I don't know why. You know, now I can see it in certain places that might be a useful restriction to inspire certain levels of creativity. But I think in that case, when you were this young person who just wants to be this like movie director or screenwriter or something, and someone just wipes out a whole slate of possibilities of what you may have been interested in, that literally created a block. Like it was like, I want to write that, but uh, uh, I can't. And for me, I think that's probably where my block started. And so I had one of these classic writer's block where I was literally sitting down on the computer to try to write these proposals for film projects and just mostly coming up with blanks, really struggling with it. So there's that kind of block. What I've learned about in the long haul, uh, and it's something that Julia Cameron, who talks about in the artist way, but I feel like I've personally experienced it, is more of like an unconscious block. And that's where there's whole types of creativity that you don't even know that you can do. So for me, when I first did The Artist Way, the first thing that came out was I started writing poetry. And I hadn't really written much poetry, but it was like it opened this doorway. And suddenly I'm transcribing these poems come into my head. And so I had to get this little notebook and I'd be going through like the grocery store, like everywhere I was going. I was like, oh, my God, it's a poem. And I have to write it down. And I noticed that by doing The Artist Way, what happened is... The more that I wrote it down, eventually, once that block had opened, my unconscious started to realize, okay, he's going to write this stuff down. After I wrote it down repeatedly for a couple of months, then it started to get more tame. It wouldn't just come to me in the grocery store. I could like literally sit down, you know, here's some tea and I'm ready to write something. And then it would just come flowing out. And it was this learned process. At first, there was this part of my mind that was like, oh, the block is open. Let's just get it out while we can, because this person has not been listening to this for so long. Later on, I discovered photography. Being a film person, I always thought still pictures are somehow less, more boring or something, because it's so much more that would go into like actually having a movie camera and its plot and all this stuff. So I downplayed it in my brain. When I discovered that I was interested in photography, it's really surprised me. And then I got right into it. The same thing happened with music. I had no idea I was musical. My dad was musical. My sister was musical. I hated music in elementary school. I had this teacher and she basically told me I couldn't sing. And I thought music theory was overwhelmingly boring and 
I will never be a musician, but hey, but secretly in the back of my mind, I knew that I wished I could just play one song because my dad, he made maple syrup. He was a country guy. And after the end of his maple syrup season, he would have this thing called the sugar dew, which was like a big party with all his friends. There's a lot of beer and country music and stuff. And I always was like, I could just sing like one song. That'd be just great to just go in there and just sing one song and, and play one song. So that was really all it wanted to do, just as kind of like a party trick, basically. All the synchronicity happened, and I was in South Korea when I first got there. I was away from everybody. I'm suddenly away from all the limitations, entirely separate from my culture. I had some adult students, and they wanted to go to karaoke. And in Korea, karaoke is you go into a little private room, so just you and them. And they kind of just goaded me into singing. And then I sang, and then they told me that I could sing really well. And then I met some other English teachers who from other countries and stuff. And we started doing that kind of regularly because it's just a thing that you do in Korea. So I ended up doing it. And I kept getting all this positive feedback. And then I met this guy who had played guitar and he, he played a whole song. And he'd only been playing guitar for three weeks from some lessons that he got off the internet. And this is before that was like a thing, really, before YouTube, a little bit before YouTube. And then later on, I was in a store in Seoul. I used store and I looked up and I saw this guitar and it was only $50. And this is where I think like the artist way has, has helped me because Julia Cameron talks a lot about synchronicity and being aware of synchronicity and looking for it and putting these things together, like your intuitions and then seeing these things that kind of come together. I'd done the artist way a few years before. It kind of primed me to notice these things when they appear. I saw the guitar and this light bulb went off and it was like, oh, I could practice singing in the karaoke room. And I can learn guitar in my little apartment and I can play my one song, just like the other guy who played one song. Woohoo, I can do the one song. A lot of other things happened since then. Now I'm singing for my job. I also experienced a period after that. I got to the point where I was playing in front of people and then I had another block and I stopped for seven years. I didn't play at all. I'm very experienced with blocks. The one thing that I feel is most important is to protect my enthusiasm. If I'm talking to anyone about blocks, I say, you know, your enthusiasm for what you do is the most important thing. It's this precious jewel. And yes, there are certain things you could do to maybe improve your craft in ways. And that's great. But you have to measure that against your enthusiasm. Because if you're going to try to do something to such an extent that it's going to become so difficult or so unpleasant that your enthusiasm is going to go down, you have a little bit of leeway, I think, where you can push your enthusiasm down a little bit. But if you push it down too far for too long, that's when your inner critic stuff's going to come up or you're more vulnerable to when somebody comes in and says something negative to believe them and, and, and shut down. Because I was quite surprised that I shut down a second time because I'd done the artist way and I'd unblocked and I found all these things. The mind is a tricky thing. What caused you to shut down? I learned to play. Then I went off to India and I started playing for other travelers and had this encouragement. I was in Rishikesh for the first time and I was staying at this ashram and I had this yoga class. I was struggling with feeling like I'm in India and I should be doing yoga because that's what you do when you're in India. But there were other people who were staying in the ashram who were playing music and they were encouraging me to play music. We were like spending a lot of time just playing music and I wasn't going to class. And then one day I just was like, no, I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to class. I ran to the class. I get there. Beginning of class, we would do Shavasana, which is where you just lie there in the corpse pose. The teacher's not there. I'm like, okay, 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, no teacher. There's no teacher showed up. And so I turned to my friends who I was playing music with and stuff and hanging out with and socializing with. And we decided we'd go to, to get breakfast. And later that day, we were down playing music. And somebody came along and they said, hey, did you hear about your teacher? He's fell in the river, disappeared. And later on, we found out that he committed suicide. He just had decided that he didn't want to partake in this life. He was tired of his body. It was quite tragic, but the yoga shut down. Suddenly I had no choice. The only thing I have to do was to play music. So for me, it was this smack in the face from the universe because I was debating, like, should I be doing this yoga thing? Should I be doing music? 
So I ended up doing music. I'm just saying that to illustrate all these synchronicities. That's just one of many stories where I felt like I was guided towards music. The reason that I stopped, I didn't know exactly what, what happened, but looking back, I had a girlfriend who was also into the artist way and also musical. And she started to become really focused on doing an album and doing a lot of original music. And I didn't have any original music to write at that time or very little. And I wasn't getting a lot of positive feedback for what I was doing from her. And I think it just became like a comparison thing. Like she got so into it and I just wasn't in that same place. And so I didn't really do it consciously, but sort of subconsciously, I just stopped having the enthusiasm for it. And I started to think like, Oh, my singing isn't as good anymore. My guitar felt off. Everything just felt off. And I just kept pulling back. Looking back, it was just anxiety. Back to enthusiasm. You mentioned it just now. I'm curious. Do you think enthusiasm is something that you have in the beginning? And in a sense, your enthusiasm is driving you to look for a place where it can become excited? Or do you think you synchronistically stumble on something like the guitar or photography or whatever the art form is or whatever the pastime is and your enthusiasm emerges from the interest you have in the in the discipline in any objective way that's probably a really difficult question to answer i will just say this just my opinion i think that to some extent your basic enthusiasms are probably there when you're little it's things that happen to you when you're little that shut you down it's become almost a cliche now to follow your dreams or follow your bliss or whatever do you think there's value in it but there's also this cliche add-on that's pasted over the value to some extent you'll ask people what's your dream and they say i don't know it's because they honestly don't know they just have no idea what they love when you're a kid you might not have known what you wanted to do for vocation because you're just little but you know where your enthusiasms are. The things that happen when you're a kid that shape that. For me, for example, like my dad was musical. I have this one picture of me playing a plastic guitar, screaming into a microphone. I don't even remember that happening. And my dad was a blocked artist. My dad was a musician who started to get some success. It was like in the early 80s, late 70s. You got on the, the radio at the time on the show called Opry North on the country music station, Canada Wide. So he was having some success. And then for various reasons that I didn't necessarily understand, he decided, oh, he had a family and he wasn't an urban kind of person. He didn't really like the city, so he didn't want to spend a lot of time there. It just came up with a lot of reasons why not to do it. So he turned it down and then he ended up turning his back on music because of the family situation. So on some level, my guess would be, you know, either through emulation or just through natural, you know, maybe it, it was my natural enthusiasm or whatever. I don't know where I got the enthusiasm, but I think I had that enthusiasm when I was a little kid and probably wanted to do that. And then saw what was going on with my dad and internalized things that he was t telling himself and internalized those as teachings. If you do music, this is going to go badly somehow. So probably I internalized that as a little kid. And one of the biggest things that I've learned from the artist way, the unconscious as a real thing, hidden talents, hidden interests, lots of things about yourself can be hidden from yourself. A lot of people don't find out about them because they don't do anything to find out. But if you do certain things, you find ways to, to stumble upon those. You start training yourself for things to come up. That for me is a big reason of why I unblock from music in the first place. So it's a slow, slow process. It took years for it to really bubble up. I have no doubt that that bubbling up came from the exercises that I did and the work that I did with the artist way. And one of the things I know about enthusiasm, it creates a sense of contentment and 
happiness, at least for me, when I'm enthusiastic and I'm engaged in something, I'm usually smiling. I'm usually happy. I'm laughing a bit as I'm going along. Or if I'm not laughing or smiling, I'm relaxed and I'm pleased to just be in whatever that environment is. I'm thinking about this show that we're doing right now. And I've been doing this radio show on WPVM-FM and now on uh, KCEI in Taos for five years. And I'm drawn to it. And I'm always thinking about who I can get to be on the show and what kind of conversations I can have. Tying that into enthusiasm, when I was eight, nine years old, my father had a shortwave radio. And I would listen at night before I went to bed. I would listen to the radio, tuning into those distant stations, languages I couldn't understand, or sometimes you could understand it because it was English. You know, crackle, crackle, crackle. Well, we're broadcasting from some faraway land. To this day, my enthusiasm for all things radio mm. remains in place, so much so that I spend probably 10 hours a week working on these shows with no interest at all in being paid for it. This is not about money. This is about enthusiastic love for an art form. One of the most captivating enthusiasms that I have is playing and singing. There's just something about that space. We're singing a song and you're in the middle of a song. Everything else falls away. When you're performing, everything is focused. Everything is riding on it. And at the same time, you can relax into it. You know, when Joseph Campbell talked about follow your bliss, your bliss is like your rapture. It just makes you feel like you're just in this dance with the universe. And, and that's what I feel like when I'm singing. I felt it a bit when I was directing. All these things are happening. Okay, this problem's come up. Like, how do we solve that? And you're talking to this person. You're, there's something about it. The same thing when I'm shooting with a camera, kind of moving around. You're in this flow. I, I've had an opportunity to shoot some belly dancers, some video of them, and some stills. And there's something amazing. They're dancing, and I'm moving with the camera. And I almost feel like I'm dancing. It's this strange thing where it's like, because I'm just trying to get that shot, and I'm moving in this way. And I'm, I would start to get in this kind of flow of probably don't need to be moving in the flow that I'm moving, but there's something about this connectivity that's happening. Those moments, that's the point of being alive. Everything else falls away. Like when I'm singing, this is the most important thing to do. When it started out, all this fear, there's my truest self trying to come through through my art, this performance, and then there's my fear. And the fear is this veil that's over it. The goal of the practice of doing the art is to slowly erode that fear and lower that veil. Another metaphor would be an aperture. When it first starts out, you get this tiny little aperture, and the aperture is the fear. An aperture in a camera is the thing that opens and closes to let more or less light in. So at first, it starts this tiny little hole, and just a little bit is coming through. As you practice, you go through your fear and you face that fear, your aperture gets wider and wider. And with music, as that veil is coming down or the aperture is getting wider, it's like more and more of my soul is able to just come through. The, the practice part of art is just practicing so the fear goes down. Keeping practicing keeps the fear down, but stopping the practice allows the fear to come back up and the aperture to get smaller. I'm thinking about fear the way you were describing it. And I've experienced that too in creative arenas where I'm nervous. I'm a little scared. I'm a little this or that. And it strikes me that when I've experienced that fear, and this may be true with other people as well, the fear is because I don't quite know what I'm doing. 
I'm not as prepared as I would like to be. So the fear sometimes might get mislabeled or misnamed because it actually might be more confusion that frightens you rather than fear as an entity floating around out there in the ether waves getting ready to come at you. So sometimes when I describe fear or other people describe it, it's like it's creature rather than something that's a byproduct of practice or lack of understanding. So if we could somehow think of our fears, not so much as something that's a negative thing that's coming at us, but more a bellwether, a sign, a signal to say, you need to work a little bit more in this arena. And then this nervousness will go away. Yeah. And when that comfort level rises, when your comfort level rises, you say, well, I'm not afraid anymore. I mean, we're all comfortable in some place in the world. Even the most terrified person finds a place where they can go "Ah," and breathe. Maybe it's their couch. Maybe it's the private space. So when we're comfortable, we're less afraid. When we're more nervous, we're more afraid. And we describe it as fear. And that's a legitimate thing. But maybe maybe we could rethink the way we talk about it. Like I can pretty much get in a stage and most of the time not having a stage fright anymore. And it's because if a little bit of fear does come up, well, you've done this before. You've done this many times. You can do this. And I also recognize if you listen to the fear, that will create the nervousness that will bring the veil back up a little bit. That's going to create a performance that will not be as good a self-fulfilling prophecy if you let that fear in. But you have to have this bank of experiences and the practice on your own, plus the experience of doing it. It's this feedback loop can turn to that bank of memories and experiences of doing it well every time you try to do it a new time. And then when you do it successfully, you take that experience and you put it into the bank. And then it becomes another one. Then you become more and more confident. So when you learn something like that, and the artist way teaches us how to do that, like you, I've been working with the artist way since 19, well, a little longer than you, 1994. And I did teach a lot of artist way classes with Julia Cameron years ago Mm -hmm. and learned a lot about artist way philosophy from, from her. And the main thing I learned from Julia is you got to show up tomorrow. Got to show up tomorrow and you got to do the work like you've never done it before. And then when you go to bed, you get up the next day, you do your morning pages and you show up at the desk and you do the work again. And it never changes. You keep doing it and you keep doing it. No matter how many times you've done it, you still start new the next day. And that seems so simple. And there's nothing magical about it except, well, can I do that? Am I willing to do it? So I've done the artist's way a, a long, long time. And That's what I've learned. Just get up and do the work and then get up and do it again. And eventually you start to have a relationship with your fears. And as you were talking about singing, and I think I may have mentioned this to you before, I grew up playing Appalachian music with my father. Mm -hmm. And my father, like yours, was a country man. He worked for the power company and he played Appalachian music all his life. He loved the fiddle. He loved the guitar. He could play many instruments. I could only play the guitar and I always wanted to sing and I never could. I was terrified of my voice because like you, I stood beside the piano and yelled. Nobody told me the voice is an instrument that you can work with. You can soften, you can play with. And I was never able to hear music in my head. Like some people can hear it in their heads. I I can't somehow, or occasionally I hear it. 
So I never understood how to do it. And many years later, I still longed to sing. And sometimes somebody would say, well, would you try to sing? And I would just get sweaty, afraid. I was fearful of it. And then one day I thought, okay, you have a good radio voice. It's deep. It's not a singing voice like the great singers, but it's a, it's a pleasing voice. What if you didn't sing? What if you just spoke the lyrics and strummed the guitar while you were speaking? What if you gave up trying to hit the notes? What if you just spoke it like it was a lullaby? You were speaking on a, on a warm summer's night. And I tried it. I didn't hit a note, but somehow my voice synchronized with the music and it was okay. Nice. And that's when I learned about the singing range, the vocal range. So I can't sing summertime when the living is easy, fish are jumping. It's just awful. It makes me scared even to do it now. But I can say summertime and the living is easy, fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Your daddy's rich and your mama, she's good looking. Hush, little baby. Don't you cry. Am I singing? Sure. Why not? There's also people like Leonard Cohen. I didn't know who Leonard Cohen was, but I remember he won like a Juno Award, which is the Canadian equivalent of the Grammys. I heard him singing. I was like, man, this guy's awful. But like, <laughs> but now I appreciate Leonard Cohen a lot more. Got that voice. You wouldn't think it was a traditional singing voice, but it works. I'm modeling my work after Leonard Cohen, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right about the, the fear. I, I was interviewing a couple the other day, Don and Julia, and they're musicians. And I've already aired their show. And they're professional musicians. They play with Rod Stewart, who's a rock and roller from the 80s and the 70s, way back in the day. And sure enough, Rod Stewart's still up on the stage in Las Vegas with a big band. And these people are doing full tilt, big stadium shows. Wow. And they're playing at this really top-notch level. And Don said, oh, Nave, I love your voice. Why don't you come to Las Vegas when we're there? And I always have an extra room and we can, we can noodle around with some music. And wow. I can record. And I said, well, sure, man, no problem. And, and I wasn't nervous about that. But then he said, you know, and we can go to the arena and I can, we can walk out on the stage and I can show you what it feels like to look out on a big stage arena. And I said, that sounds good. And then I thought, well, far-fetched as this is, what if Rod Stewart, because he likes to play, what if he said, well, Nave, you want to do a spoken word piece on the <laughs> stage with us? And that's when I got scared. I was like, oh, God. I don't and all the little stuff that I have kind of oozed up. Now, that's my own fabrication. I don't yeah. think I'm going to be invited into a spoken word thing yeah. on that big stage because they are so professional and I, I could probably do it though. But you know, if I did get asked to do it, I would say, yes, yeah, sure, man, show me the mic. Mm -hmm. And I would take a deep breath and go out there and see what would happen. <laughs> it's scary to yeah. think about. And I think that makes sense with what you're saying, because that's a new thing. You don't have that bank of uh, experiences of anything like that. You have all this other stuff that's fine. It's like, what could you do at a level that's higher than you've done? And that's when it gets scary. That's when I find stage fright too. It's like when I find myself in front of a different situation, one that I've never been in, I'll get surprised. I'll get up there on stage and I'll sit down. And then suddenly I'm like, whoa, stage fright. <laughs> Where did that come yeah. from? Well, it's because people are expecting something from you and you've agreed to give it to them. And you, you know, you can, or you think you can. And usually we can 
Because one of the things I've learned in the artist way work, we will always rise. We always have that in us, no matter how far we want to go. If we choose to go there, we can take it there. It might not end up being exactly like we thought it was going to be. We may not get everything we thought we might, but we can go there. And yet when we do and the stakes get higher, it is a little odd. You talked about dreams. People always ask, what's your dream? And I've always stumbled around that because I've never known what it meant to have one dream. Mm. I've always had a lot of enthusiasm and I've always enjoyed the projects I've done, but I've always had a hard time answering that question. What is your biggest dream? Do you have trouble answering that question? Yes. Yeah. Because there were times in my life where I did have a big dream. When I was 17, I wanted to be a writer. When I was 19, I wanted to be a film director and a writer. Then I went to film school. kind of got shut down in a way. And I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And then I didn't really know. One of the things that I think I've discovered over time, you know, especially finding out that I was enthusiastic and interested in art forms that I hadn't considered or that I had dismissed, like music, photography, poetry, I was so surprised. I'm still very surprised. Like every time I get up and sing, it's a little less now, but for a long time, it was like, wow, I can do this. Like, this is impossible. Like, (laughs) this isn't me. Wow. This is crazy. Like I was so just excited. I still excited thinking about it that I'm able to do it. Wow. I can sing. Like I didn't think I could sing. Even still, if I try to sing happy birthday to somebody, it's the same crappy happy birthday that everybody does. <laughs> like It's not anything special. It's so weird. Oh, that's how my voice used to sound. I define my voice. For me, it's not about a particular dream. I tend to be a little more in the moment and listen for that guidance of where am I supposed to go. When I went to India, I decided I'm just going to follow my intuition. Intuition where to go for breakfast, intuition who to travel with, intuition what town to go to. And when I did that, all these amazing things happened. Had all these adventures, met all sorts of interesting people, found out that I was even more musical than I thought, had this catapult into music, more photography. All these amazing things happened when I let go of having this goal or this dream. I'm just going to follow in the moment where my enthusiasm is. So I think sometimes having a dream can itself become a block because there's so many things that you don't know about yourself. There's this whole thing about follow your bliss. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't work for people is what happens is they have a a blissful experience doing some kind of creativity. They intellectualize the whole thing and be like, how can I make that into something I'm going to do? And they might monetize it. They might not monetize it, but it becomes so intellectual. They concretize this experience they had and try to build everything off the experience. In my personal history and story, I found that it's not about the experience per se. It's about the experience of the enthusiasm is but the experience of the bliss and that's a changing moving shifting thing compass that i use to try to guide myself is the feeling it's the feeling it's not the content necessarily if the vehicle keeps working if the music keeps working to get the enthusiasm going awesome i'm going to stick with it if at some point the music doesn't work first of all i'm going to try to play around with it as much as i can to see if i can rediscover where the enthusiasm is and see if i've lost it Joseph Campbell, he had, many, he had many quotes about following your bliss, but one of the longer ones was, you know, if you follow your bliss, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, doors will open where before there were no doors and where for other people, there would be no doors. Even though I thought I was following my dream to go to film school, it's part of my creativity, it still is, but more core to my creativity was much more doing music. And it wasn't until I found music that I really started noticing all the synchronicity like really start to flow. I didn't intend to be making any money doing music. It's just that 
people start asking me. Suddenly these doors just start opening. This is what Joseph Campbell was talking about. So for me, it's less about following your dreams and more about following your bliss. And what's your bliss? Your bliss is your enthusiasm. And I'm thinking maybe instead of saying, follow the bliss, we might say, let your bliss inform your actions so that you're not really following your bliss, but you're experiencing bliss. And then when your enthusiasm goes up, your bliss rises, you know that your actions are sympathetic to your destiny. And so you're listening to your bliss. You're taking your cues from your bliss. Yeah. You're doing the same thing with your enthusiasm because both enthusiasm and bliss are emotional states. When you're feeling well and you're engaged in whatever it is that that excites you. And also you have enthusiasm and then excitement comes along with that. And then a sense of well-being, happiness, which is also a fleeting state. Sometimes you can yeah. be happy, sometimes you're sad. But when we're doing creative work, all of those things in play. So instead of following it, maybe we take cues from it as if yeah. the bliss, the enthusiasm, the joy, the fun, the excitement are all part of our staff of helpers, if you will, in the office, the office of you, the office of me. The bliss is a compass. It's a compass that you have to keep looking at, keep it in your hand. As a metaphor, what a lot of people do, they look at the compass at one point, and then they put the compass away and they try to follow the direction that it pointed. And then they put it down and then they think all these cultural things that say it's, it's supposed to be such a fight and you got to work hard. And then that's what people get off track. They don't keep the compass in their hand because the thing it's pointing at might not be where you're going. It's just a direction of where you got to go now. It doesn't necessarily mean that you got to keep going in that one direction forever. And I think that's where people get hung up because you just keep going. You keep going in this direction and there's no more bliss there because you're not looking at the compass anymore. You looked at it when you were 21 and then you just stopped looking at it. I think that's a terrific metaphor because when you're in the wilderness and you are lost in the wilderness, you tend to walk in the circle. You have no directional reference at all. You just walk around and around in a circle. And with a compass, you're always able to navigate because it's a navigational tool. So the compass will take you through the wilderness to the other side with ease. But if you don't have it, there you are circling around and around, wearing a path in the woods. As with all these bits of wisdom that are out there, there's a lot of nuance to it. And there's a lot of tidbits. The artist way does all this breaking down of these mythologies. One mythology Julia Cameron talks about is the common mythology that you have to be high in order to write. Or some people feel like they can only write when they're depressed. Or some people feel that they can only write when they're happy. Or these common mythologies, if you haven't deconstructed those or really questioned them and, and had examples of why that's just wrong and is not needed, they can lead you really astray. It doesn't matter if you think you're going to follow your bliss. You look at the compass once, then you get these cultural messages. Another cultural message would be something like, how are you going to monetize this? So you take your bliss, you get concentrated on how are you going to monetize this? In this day and age, the big thing is social media. Somebody recently posted a post about how they love being a musician, but they were really frustrated with all the things that they had to push on social media. I didn't really comment, but in my brain, I'm thinking, you don't actually have to do that. There's a social media thing that says you do that, that applies to anyone who does social media. And it's not that it's not true. In my experience, like if you're following your bliss and you're using that compass, you have all this extra help from the universe in general, doors opening and things happening. 
but that's the whole point. It's about finding your unique path and your unique synchronicities. And like Joseph Campbell said, doors will open for you when you follow your bliss where they weren't before and where for other people, they would not open. And so this is the whole world that we have now on the internet where everybody's trying to replicate everything and give you some formula of how you're supposed to do it. If you're taking in that theology about social media proliferation techniques, and you're trying to do follow your bliss, well, those things are going to run interference if you haven't deconstructed some of those ideas. They really will. And I'm also thinking the idea of the compass in wandering the wilderness with the compass as a navigational tool is a terrific metaphor. And it occurred to me as you were describing this idea of following the compass and looking at it more than once, some people who are wilderness experts can read all of the signs in the wilderness so they don't have to look at the compass as much. They know where the North Star is. They know how to read the stars in the sky in general. They can read the signs. They can read the sun. They can tell by the topography of the land, which direction it flows. They can tell by what grows on the slopes, if the slope is facing north or south, west or east. Maybe the artist way teaches us how to traverse these wildernesses or the wilderness, and I use wilderness in the best sense of, of an environmental place, mm. traverse the wilderness with enough knowledge so that we can read the signs. We yeah. develop a sign reading ability. We know when we see something on the slope, what it is and why it's there. Sure. We know how to spot the path in the distance yeah. and we know how to read our compass. And that's something we can learn. And I think that's something the artist way teaches us. Exactly that. You have this compass. Some of it is maybe a little more spiritual or whatever, like reading synchronicity and signs and things like that. But it's also other things like recognizing mythology when it comes up, recognizing stuff that's just BS. If you didn't have that skill set of knowing, it's like now I go along and, and I hear certain people say things, you become like a duck where the water goes off you a lot more easily because you've already heard that. You have to spend time debating whether or not that piece of information about social media, whatever is, is true. I mean, you can debate it a little bit, but it's just not going to stop you in the same way because you've been educated on those and those pitfalls. I mean, as a traveler, another part of the metaphor. So for example, like I've gone to India and people often ask me things about India. What, what do you need to travel in India? Tricky place to travel in many ways. And one of the things I will say is get one of those guidebooks and read the section at the end that says dangers and annoyances. Read that. Like if you didn't read anything else, that's the thing you got to read because it'll tell you the scams that could happen. One of the scams is you try to go to your hotel and the driver, even if you got a car from the airport, the driver will be like, oh, that hotel is closed. We'll call the hotel and check. And you call up and it's his buddy pretending to be the hotel, telling you that it's closed. And then they take you to a different hotel where the driver's getting a commission and it's not the hotel you want to be at. And once they've roped you into this, they try multiple other scams. But if you know this scam, then you see the signs of it being a scam and you're like, oh, no, thank you. And you go with someone who's not doing that to you or you don't believe the call because you, you read about it. You learned about it. You learned a skill. You know, those pitfalls are there. And when you know they're there, you can avoid them. I think that's another great metaphor. So you're in the city avoiding the scams. And then when you come to the come to the wilderness, you also can avoid the crevices, the the falls, yeah. the the deep streams. And yeah. that's what the artist way teaches us. Well, Jeremiah Hill. On that note, I think we've arrived at the end of our time together. Before we go, tell people how they can reach out to you if they'd like to know more about what you're up to. 
Well, first of all, if they want to find the Artist's Way group that I run, it's just called The Artist Way Group. It's on Facebook. I'm pretty sure it's facebook.com slash The Artist Way Group. Uh, but if you just put it in your search bar, I think we have about 13,500 or something now. Uh, so they can find that there. Also, I am on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube at Jeremiah Hill Music. It's the same for all of those places. I have a website for my photography that's called jeremiahill.com. Um, and yeah, most of, I do a lot of covers, some originals that are on my, up on my YouTube. Uh, so if you want to hear me, that's probably the best way to go. Well, thank you for being with us today and letting us hear what you have to say. And I certainly love the idea of wandering in the wilderness with you. So thank you, Jeremiah Hill. Thanks, James. And there you go, my friends. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeremiah Hill. I ran across Jeremiah, as I said, in the interview Many years ago, when I was scanning through my Facebook account and noticed his Artist Way offering, his Artist Way group, and I signed up and joined it and have been watching it grow ever since and been participating in it as well. One of the things I like about the way Jeremiah approaches that group, and it's a group, not a page, a community. Jeremiah has a hands-on, hands-off way of managing the group. Hands-on in the sense that he sets a tone for everyone on the page, over 13,000 people now. So he sets a tone that lets people know they're welcome to discuss all aspects of their creativity. They're welcome to ask questions about the artist way philosophy, the artist way approach, about Julia Cameron. They're welcome to make a contribution regarding their experiences around their creativity. And on the hands-off flip side, Jeremiah's fine with everybody having their own approach to creativity. He's happy for people to be creative with their postings. Jeremiah understands he's created an online community. And when you have a community of 13,000 plus people, you have every view you could possibly have regarding how people see creativity, how they interact with it. Some people are very confident with the work they do. Other people are just beginning to find their way in their creative lives. The artist way, finding your way. How will you come up with ideas, strategies, plans that will help you move along in your artistic journey, whatever that journey might be. My first experience with the artist way happened in a little cafe in New York City on the corner of McDougal in Bleecker in the West Village. I was touring the country as a performance poet, a spoken word artist, presenting material to students in schools, mostly public schools, kindergarten through the 12th grade, and sometimes in colleges. And I had memorized oodles of poetry from the school textbooks and would go in and present the material. And the students loved it because they were studying it in the classroom and afterwards I would do follow-ups and go into different kinds of workshops and help the students memorize poems and learn them as a way of studying, studying poetry. So I identified myself as a creative, as a performer, didn't think I needed anything like the artist way. So in that coffee shop on the corner of McDougal and Bleecker, 
I was sitting there writing or thinking or reading or just looking out the window and the, the woman who was serving the coffee brought my coffee over. We struck up a conversation and she was reading The Artist Way and I said, well, what's that? She said, oh, it's a book about free and creativity. It's written by Julia Cameron and I'm an actor and I'm hoping to be very successful as an actor and a lot of my friends are using this book to help them get over their blocks, to help them move their careers along. Would you like to take a read? Would you like to see it? I said, sure. She gave me the book. I sat there with my coffee and read the introduction. And the thing about it that's interesting for me upon reflection, I didn't think I needed it. I thought, well, this is great. This is this book is for people who aren't as creative as I am. Now, that was hubris. I was overly confident. I had no idea what I was talking about other than, yeah, sure, I was doing creative work, actually making a living doing creative work. So I made the wrong-headed assumption that I didn't need to read The Artist Way. Oh, about six or seven months later, I ran into Alexandra Weber, who was visiting Asheville, and we struck up a conversation, and she said the same thing. The woman said to me in the coffee shop in New York, do you know the book The Artist Way? And I said, whoa, yes, I do. I, I had a chance to look at that book about six months ago. I didn't say to Alexandra that I had rejected the idea. She said, I encourage you to take a look at The Artist Way. I think it will help you. So I had enough sense to realize if I heard the same thing from two people, maybe it was worth a look. So I decided to drop all of my resistance. I went down to the local bookstore, Malaprops, which is still in Asheville to this day, and I bought The Artist Way, sat down, opened it up, I read the introduction, and then started on week number one, recovering a sense of safety. And a sense of safety was followed by week two, three, four, on up to week 12, with different topics. The second week was identity, followed by power, integrity, possibility, abundance, connection, strength, compassion, self-protection, autonomy, and faith. So I started out on my Artist Way journey, doing the Artist Way book, week one, two, three, four. About week five, I realized I wanted to do something different. I had been performing, I'd been traveling all over the place, but I'd never taken a vacation, just gone somewhere because I wanted to. So I decided that I was going to take a little three-week trip to Boulder, Colorado. So I did just that. I flew out, rented a car. There I was in Boulder visiting friends whom I'd known for many years. It was snowing on one of the Saturdays I was there. It was late February. And I noticed in the little weekly newspaper, there was an Artist Way workshop being offered at Borders Bookstore in Boulder on 29th Street. It was being taught by Julia Cameron and Mark Bryan. The workshop was scheduled for 3 o'clock that afternoon. It was snowing, as I said, but it didn't seem to matter to people in Boulder, a Colorado snow country. So I went down at 2.30, and Julia was there, and Mark Bryan was there, and a whole bunch of people had already gathered. And again, even though it was snowing, people came out. And it was a good two-hour workshop, and after the workshop, I went up to Miss Cameron and made a comment or two, and... She said, thank you for coming to the workshop, and I said, I really enjoyed it. And then by chance, I said, well, what are you doing 
after the workshop. What are you doing now? And she said, oh, a bunch of us are going to go down to the Boulder Mall and have sushi. Why don't you join us? So I did. And during the dinner, I realized that Julia and I had some friends in common, Mark Smith, the founder of the Poetry Slam in Chicago. And Julia knew Mark. She had even read her poetry at the Green Mill, where Mark hosted a venue. And she said, oh, say hi to Mark. And I said, sure, I'll do that. And after that, Julia and I stayed in touch. And turns out she was coming to the southeast, Greenville, South Carolina, to do a workshop. And she decided to stop by Asheville, where I was living, and pay me a visit for two or three days. And during that time, she proposed a project, which was to help her create the Artist Way Creativity Camps in Taos. Now this was in 95, long time ago now, and I agreed, why not? So the next summer I came to Taos and we started working on the Artist Way Creativity Camps and we produced a number of them. And that's how I got to know Julia. And when you think about it, it wasn't that far from the day I was in the coffee shop in New York at McDougal and Bleecker and when I got to know Julia and Boulder and then the creativity camps followed that and on it went. I continued to teach artist way work, creativity work, continued with the poetry world and now Jeremiah Hill is on this show and I met Jeremiah because of his engagement with the artist way and of course Julia continues to to write. She now has a book on wisdom, a book on listening, a book about writing, how to write. She also produced a book with her creative collaborator, Emma Lively. It's never too late to begin again. That's a book for people who are retiring, or if not retiring, moving to another area, redefining their, their lives. So what have I learned about creativity in all this? I've learned that creativity is everywhere. We were born dramatically creative, and we continue to be creative no matter what we do. And because creativity is all around us, you could carry it with great ease into the idea of spirituality, the spirit, the energy, the, the, the stuff that moves through you, that animates you. So often in the creativity work that I do and the conversations that I have with people like Jeremiah and other people, maybe like you, if we ever had a conversation together, we would talk about the creativity that we know exists within us, but we would also talk about how we're going to organize it. How do you take the picture? How do you write the essay? How do you write your memoir? How do you plant your garden? How do you cook your meal? How do you do whatever it is that you want to do? Because it's all about the creative force that flows through everyone, including you, including me. And finally, no matter what creative work you choose to do, one of the privileges of having the opportunity to make things, you can do it all of your life. So there's no end to what we can do. And on that note, I would like to say thanks ever so much for tuning in. We're almost at the top of the hour. So I'm going to say you've been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio 
fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you're interested in more of Walter's music, thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you'd like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org. You can start there, and who knows where it will lead you. Maybe you'll end up with a podcast like this. You never can tell. And I would also like to let you know that if you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, nave at jamesnave.com. And James Nave is also my, my website. Every Saturday morning, I gather with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, and we produce what we call the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week sessions. We meet at noon Eastern Time, uh, 10 Mountain Time, and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. So if you would like to join me and find out what it means to write from the imaginative storm to the creative form, explore the idea of how to trust your rational mind while you let your imaginative mind uh, lead the dance with your rational mind and create something in a 10 minute time frame. That's all we write in the hour is 10 minutes. And then you get a chance to read your work afterwards as well. Imaginativestorm.com is where you will find the Zoom link and the information around how to get in touch with Allegra and also get in touch with me. So we would love to have you. The door is always, always open. And we're getting new people all the time. We usually have 25 people on the call. So it's it's a great deal of fun. So once again, I really do appreciate you tuning in and listening. And thanks, Jeremiah Hill, for all the good work you do. And thank you, Julia Cameron, and 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 everybody out there for all the good work you do, including you, wherever you happen to be in the world. So I do hope you tune in again on the next round. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>